Welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Selinski, aka the Running Wine Mom. Today, we're diving into the world of dark mysteries and the supernatural. Our guest today, none other than Jason Rikulik, the brilliant author behind the spine-tingling novel, Hidden Pictures. Hidden Pictures is a haunting tale that will keep you on the edge of your seat, featuring Mallory, a nanny fresh out of rehab who stumbles upon a household secret with far-reaching consequences. Teddy, the young boy she cares for, becomes the center of an unsettling mystery as he creates drawings that seems to channel the supernatural. Stick figures evolve into something much darker on a ch- lead Mallory and her companions on a chilling journey into the unknown. Today, I have the privilege of chatting with the mastermind behind the gripping story. We'll explore the inspiration behind Hidden Pictures, dissect the, dissect the complexities of its character, and uncover the eerie twists and turns that makes the book a must-read for fans of the supernatural and mystery genres. So grab your favorite glass of wine and get a co- and get cozy as we step into the world of Hidden Pictures with Jason, the author who brought this dark and unusual tale to light. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much, Sam. It's great to be here. Yes, I am so excited to have you on. Um, so to start each episode, we have our wine, wine, and win of the week segment. This is where we share our favorite bottle of wine or drink, read about something that has been bothering us, and celebrate our recent victories. So grab a glass, take a deep breath, and let's get started. So Jason, what is your wine, W-I-N-E, of the week? Well, I see I'm going to be a disappointment here because I actually don't drink much in the way of wine. Um, I will... Um... I'll have beer. I like bourbon. I like cocktail. But, uh, you know, my go-to is usually like something like Corona or Heineken. My dad, he loves Heineken and he needs to have it ice, ice cold. So when he was on here, that's what like, he's like, I don't drink wine. I want, I want to have my Heineken as we celebrate, uh, you know, the podcast. I was like, all right, you can have your Heineken. (laughs) (laughs) And today's a good day for a Corona too, because it's absolutely so hot. Um, So what's your W-H-I-N-E of the week? W-H-I-N-E of the week. Oh, that's a good question. Um, God, I mean, I don't know. This is a pretty boring answer, but I mean, the potholes in Philadelphia are just really bad right now. And <laughs> I spent so much money plugging tires because uh, oh. my tires are constantly leaking air. And um, I don't know, every time I get in my car, it drives me crazy. So, uh, and, and there's a big pothole on my street right now. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's my that's silly little um, how about your win of the week? Uh, my win of the week, I guess, is I just took my son up to school. Well, this was last week, last weekend. Um, but we took him off to, he's starting a sophomore year of college. So I feel like that's a win. I got him moved yeah. in. Uh, we awesome. left him there. He seems like he's uh-huh. he's off to a good start. So That's good. That's great. Once they're in, You're the total opposite of me. You're empty nesters. I'm a new nester. We have two toddlers, two and one. So <laughs> we're at the oh, opposite stick end. around, so. yeah. Um, so I always like to ask my guests, what is one struggle that you've overcome leading to where you are now? And what is one thing that you're most proud of in your life? Oh, boy. Um, struggle that I've overcome. Well, I mean, I guess if I'm proud of anything, I mean, I'm proud of the fact that I can do the job that I do now. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, it's pretty hard to make a living as a writer. But but from the time I was about 20 or 21, I knew that I wanted to I was like, well, if I could make money doing anything, this is the one thing I enjoy more than anything else. Unfortunately, no one's going to pay for it. Um, I mean, it's even hard for people who are good to get paid for it. uh, Because there are a lot of good books that just don't find an audience. So I spent many, many years um, working at night or early in the morning uh, on writing, I would get up uh, early or stay up late. Um, and you, you know, pretty diligently like two hours a day. Um, and there was probably like a 20 year stretch where I just didn't sell anything, you know? Um, 
And, you know, even up to the point when, you know, and it, it got harder when my kids were born, of course, because now suddenly there's even more demands on my time. Right. Um, but I found that, you know, they would usually go to bed around 730 when they were young. We were pretty strict about uh, the bedtimes. Mm -hmm. And so I would use that time. And um, I missed a lot of TV. Like I missed The Walking Dead. <laughs> like everyone was talking about them. You know, <laughs> there were all these shows that like people were watching. And I was like, well, I'm not doing that. But I'm also writing these things that, um, you know, I was not getting published. But then eventually I did. I mean, I, I think it was like 45 when I had my first book published. And, wow. Um, and now um, at the point where I can work on it uh, all day because uh, this is this is what I do. And it's what I've always wanted. So I guess, you know, part of it is like, be careful what you wish for. Because now, like, I, you know, sometimes I'm my wife. I'm like, God, I'm so lonely. Like, I'm alone all day, you know, because yeah. I don't work with anybody anymore. <laughs> And that's the flip side to um, to this dream job is that it's really, really solitary, really isolating. Um, but then you get podcast invitations and it's like, well, all right, yeah. I'll, I'll do this podcast. I'll meet somebody. <gasps> so here I am. Yes, you get to work with someone today. I'm so excited to be that person. <laughs> so I guess that, that's that's the answer to both questions. There's, there's yeah. struggles and something I'm proud of in, in one answer. It's funny because um, I was interviewing um, Annabelle Monahan who did um same time next summer and Nora goes off script and she was kind of saying something similar and like I feel like there's such a pressure of just anyone in general to be like if you're not successful by the time you're 30 like your your, your book or whatever it is that you can't do it and then I find like a lot of writers it's like not until they are like, on the other end um of like third mid 30s 40s that they're getting the success that they wanted and I'm like okay that's that's awesome that's gives like less pressure to just anyone in general to feel like they can do whatever they want at whatever you know, time frame. There's no time limit on anything, which is cool. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I mean, certainly it's been true in my experience and I, and I do, I'm like a big subscriber in like that whole, you know, that theory about the 10,000 hours of practice. I, I, mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in that. Um, I have this photo above my desk. I'm looking at it right now. It's a quote. It's from this uh, French photographer, Henri probably mispronouncing his name, Henri Cartier-Bresson. And the quote is, your first 10,000 photographs are your worst. And I love it. Like, I'm like, oh my God, that's so true. If you were a photographer, get ready to take a lot of photographs because the first 10,000 are going to be really bad. You're going to look back at them someday and be like, oh my God, I had no idea what I was doing. But after you take 10,000, yeah. you'll probably, probably be a lot better. Yeah. So that's always my advice to creative people. Is, you know, if you want to write, start writing. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't, you don't really want to um, and do something yeah. else. That's great. You know, do something right. else with your time. Um, there's much easier ways to make money. Uh, if it makes you happy, you'll do it. If it doesn't, um, you won't. Yeah, that's great advice. I love that. Um, first 10,000 hours. That, well, I guess I won't put out 10,000 podcast episodes yet, but I definitely <laughs> probably spent like a thousand hours on them. So maybe I just need to do 9,000 more and then. Um, <laughs> But I even see that's so funny. Like I see from my first episode until now that just the yeah. difference and the changes. I didn't even know what I was doing day one, but now yeah. I definitely have more to handle. So that's very important advice. Um, all right. So this is the running wine mom. Um, obviously you, we include all parents in this. So let's talk about parenthood at first to start off with. Tell us about your family. I have a son. He's 19 and a okay. daughter and she will, she's about to be 17. She's uh, I'm teaching her how to drive right now. So. Oh boy. <laughs> um, and my wife, uh, Julie, um, she's an architect. 
Um, okay. So we're both self-employed, actually. She's she's she has her own architecture business. So what do you think you were least prepared for in parenthood? Least prepared for? Gosh, I feel like I was unprepared for everything. I think I was unprepared for like how highs the high could be and how lows the low could be. I mean, you, you knew it was going to be a roller coaster. That's what everyone says. That's the metaphor everyone uses. Uh, and, and I guess the other thing I, I'm, well, I don't know. I don't know if I would have believed this anyone told me, but like, I, I always found the first couple of years to be the hardest, like when my kids were really young. And then like, you get to a point, or at least I got to a point where like, once they were in like elementary school, okay. where, you know, it just became a lot easier and a lot more fun. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, you know, from like age six to now, like to me, it was like, you know, there's occasional challenges and things like that, but largely like, it's, it's just, you know, really tons of fun. But, well, <laughs> I thought the, I thought the baby years were by far the toughest. They're I don't tough. know if my wife would agree with that. She might have different thoughts on it, but um. yeah, they're definitely tough. But I'm hoping that like what everyone says, this is the toughest, and then it'll get like hard, harder in other ways, but easier in a lot of ways. So that's something that um, I'm definitely looking forward to. <laughs> yeah. How old are your kids? You said one and three. Well, uh, my daughter will be three in November, and then my son just turned one in June, so they're like 18 months apart. Yeah, see, that was the, I've, my, I mean, I blocked it out a lot of it. I just don't even remember. Um, but, you know, my sense is that it was really, really tough for, yeah. for both of us. Um, yeah. But, you know, I don't know, last summer we went to Spain. I took wow. my 19 year old and my 16 year old. They carry their own bags. It's easy. That's awesome. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, um, that's so, I'm definitely not wishing away time, but one day I'll be doing yeah. that. Yeah, you, you you got a lot of good times to look forward to. Uh, I'm sure of it. Um, what is one piece of advice that you would give other parents? Um, I, hold on, you will get yeah. through it. Uh, you will get out of it. You know, I have I've had friends who have divorced like during those early years because like for whatever reason that you know because because it just seems like you're going to be changing diapers forever. But one day right. you will change your last diaper. <laughs> you know, it will That's stop. Today. Yeah, we're we're ready for that day. I think. So, um, so yeah, I would just, I would just, uh, encourage people to, to, to hold on, um, because it does change. It's always evolving. And, um, and, and in my experience, again, it just largely got easier. That's um, good to know. I hope, I hope. I hope it's <laughs> um, all right. So let's get into the fitness. So how do you stay active? I know today you did a five mile bike ride around the city. Um, is that, yeah, I mean, I mostly do biking. Um, I, I generally, I work out of an office, um, that's across the city from me. It's about like 4.7 miles, I think from my house by bike. Okay. So if I bike there in the morning, um, it's a great way to start my day. Cause you know, you get a little exercise, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll do that at like seven 30. I'll leave the house. I'll bike over there. Work until about three, three 30 bike back. Um, and that's kind of all I do, but like, I find that like, it's enough, you know, it ends yeah. up being. If I, you know, if I go there all five days, it's like 50 miles a week yeah, and, um, you know, I sleep pretty well and I, I probably should be doing other things, but you know, it's also just hard to fit, you know, I'm sure everybody laments they they can't fit exercise into the schedule, but yeah, uh, it's hard. But I think what you're doing is great. I mean, I know in the summers for me, since I teach, I'm off in the summers and prior to me having kids, I always lived down the shore and I was never going to the gym, but I, walking everywhere and the amount of steps that I would get in the summer was crazy compared to the off season. Um, 
just because you're like walking everywhere and it's like kind of mindless, similar to you, you're just intertwining it into your everyday, right. which is equally as important as just like, you know, going to the gym. What um, short town did you live in? I'm curious. Uh, I lived in Sea Isle City. Oh, okay. Oh, Sea Isle's yeah. great. I worked nice. at um, O'Donnell's Courthouse for, it's right next, that's right next to the Ocean Dive. Yeah. For 14 okay. summers, I worked there. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's great. That's awesome. And then now like, my um, son's godmother has a house in Avalon and um, my godmother has a house in West Wildwood. So we like, we're back and forth to there a lot this summer, um, mm -hmm. which is nice. So which shore do you guys go to? Well, we usually go to Ocean City, uh, New Jersey mm -hmm. for just a week. Um, you know, yeah. we'll rent a house and, um, and we have a bit of a family get together down there. That's um, fun. But there's I look really forward to like, yeah, there's nothing like it. Um, mm -hmm. I did the houses with like 13 people and as we got older, it was less and less, but it was like so cheap for a summer share to live there. Um, yeah. just the way that I worked out, but you know, maybe one day I'm like, maybe when <laughs> my kids are older, I'll, I'll do it again for the summers. But right yeah. now it's kind of hard to do that. Sure. Um, so. That is what I was going to start to talk about next. Um, we are from the same area, and that's the one thing um, with Hidden Pictures that immediately kind of sucked me in um, with the first part being at um, UPenn. Like her, and I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize this was set in the um, Philadelphia area. And then uh -huh. um, this, I, I don't know if I said it to you or not before, but the Storybook Land reference oh, was yeah. something that I... We used to go there when I was growing up, like yeah. all, all the time. And um, it's on my list to take my kids this year, actually. But um, I just thought that was such a cool reference in there. They, yeah, it's funny. Anytime I hear from someone who's like a true South Jersey person, like they always they always go right to storybook land and yeah. talk about it. Because if you I, like, know, you out, know. Like, it's this crazy yeah. I'm like, oh my place. gosh, the book I'm reading. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it's real. Um, and you'll love it. Like, I don't, when's the last time you've been there? I mean, I think I was like, eight maybe yeah. nine oh my God. you know i was young i haven't i been don't know that it's changed since you've been there like it's pristine it's absolutely spotless it's That's immaculately so clean. clean um it is i don't for for listeners who don't know it it's this family-owned amusement park um but it's like as far from six flags as you can get like mm -hmm. and and there's like there are like tiny roller coasters and like spinny rides and, you know, cars that you can go in circles. Um, but then they also have like, you know, the Ten Commandments. Um, I know. It's like, like so like random. Biblical exhibits uh, and all these really cool nursery rhyme uh, things that are, you know, all built in like 1950s uh, and, and perfectly preserved. Um, so it does feel like you're stepping back in time. Yeah, uh, I am excited some of my friends take their kids and I'm like, Oh, I think this will be a good year to start taking them because they can walk around a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll love it. It's totally chill. It's never crowded. Yeah. Um, even like with young kids, like it's just, it's so quiet and chill. There really aren't lines for anything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so, and then the other question that I wanted to ask was the town that you set the story in i yeah. imagined it as haddonfield or collingswood did you is that what yeah no it's totally haddonfield um yeah. <laughs> my wife and i have a good friend who lives over there and uh i think it's a great little town i mean i uh sometimes i wonder why i don't live there because if i was going to live in, <laughs> i live in west philadelphia so you know it's about as far from haddonfield <laughs> as yeah. you can get. um but i ever you know i think sometimes if i if i were to live in a suburb um 
it's a really nice town. And um, for the purposes of the book, you know, I wanted, I needed something that was geographically close to Philadelphia because the way the story works, but I wanted it to be for, for Mallory, the character who, who grew up in South Philly, I wanted it to feel, I wanted her to feel like a fish out of water. I, I needed it to be um, very kind of affluent. Um, but I also wanted it to feel like a town, you know, like I didn't yes. want it to be like a, a gated community. I, I wanted her to be able to walk around and see people. So Haddonfield fit the bill perfectly. Yeah. It was, as soon as I read it, I'm like, this has to be Haddonfield. I'm like, <laughs> if not, it's got to be a surrounding um, town like yeah. Collingswood or Haddon Township. So you did a good job of describing it. <laughs> um, so uh, before you released your books, you worked for a publishing company in the Philadelphia area. And did you do, did I read it correctly that you did ghost writing titles? Mm -hmm. Is that, how did it help influence you with your writing? It was actually really helpful. I worked, uh, I, I've always worked in publishing. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to write from like a pretty early age. And I was like, well, okay, yeah. I can't get paid for writing. I can at least get paid to be like working on other people's yeah. books and I can learn how other people are doing this. So I wanted to be close to that experience and see how other people did it. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I started in New York, but then I moved to Philly, became friends with uh, someone who was starting a small press. So it was, it was not like a traditional New York publishing house. It wasn't like I was working for HarperCollins or Simon & Schuster. Um, we were a really tiny press. Um, we worked with mostly first-time authors. Um, and some of them were great. And some of them have gone on to, um, I just got a text from two of them who are on the Writers Guild picket line in Los Angeles right now because they're both screenwriters. Um, so those are like two of the success stories. Um, but a lot of them needed a lot of help. So you did a ton and ton of editorial work. Um, and then sometimes if I couldn't find anyone for a project, I would just write it myself under a pseudonym. I did that a bunch of times too. And the great thing about working on all those books was I don't know the state of the office, but you just, you just learn how books come together. And one big revelation for me was before I was working for too long, I always felt like, you know, to write a story, you just sat down and you wrote it and you followed the story wherever it went, you know? So it was like driving in a car down a dark road. You don't know where you're going, but you just sort of trust that your imagination is going to get you there. And that's what I thought like art was. And that's what I thought writing was. And I thought writing an outline was sort of a lesser creative right. approach. Um, right. I was wrong. <laughs> uh, and working on all these other books helped me see that because um, you'd spend so many times in like uh, meetings talking to people about problems and you would be, you'd be looking at things from a big picture and be like, well, you know, the story works until about two thirds of the way through. And then the ending is terrible, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and simultaneously, as I was working in publishing, I started having more and more meetings with uh, movie people who were adapting our books and that's all they do over there. You know, screenwriters, they pitch the whole story before they write a word. They don't put a word on paper until, okay. you know, they they pitch act one, yeah. act two, act three, right? That is the norm. Um, so I began to see that, you know, it's not a lesser creative approach. It's just a different creative approach. And some people can do it and some people can't. Um, but once I brought that approach to my own work and I started outlining my own stories before I put pencil to paper. That was helpful. Uh, I got a lot faster, a lot more efficient, and um, and I and that's when I started publishing things. Um, awesome. So uh, if I if I 
honestly, if I had started outlining sooner, I think I could have saved, I could have shaved like, instead of writing for 20 years without publishing anything, it might've been like 10. Wow. <laughs> I'm <That's> saving <laughs> myself 10 years. Um, and so how do you find books for publishing agencies? Like, do people just send them in and then you just decide this is what I want to use? Well, yeah, I mean, do people hire you? That's, that's how it works at like large corporate houses. Like they, they get submissions from agents all day long. Um, mm -hmm. We would not get submissions from agents because we couldn't match the advances that, you know, uh, uh, Simon & Schuster or Random House would pay an author. Right. Um, because we were just a small little imprint. And um, we also didn't have, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but we didn't have what's called a backlist. Uh, okay. Th these large publishing houses like Random House, think about how much money they're making every day off of the cat in the hat. Yeah. Right? Do your kids have the mm -hmm. cat in the hat? Yeah. Right? I mean, like everybody yeah. has it, right? <laughs> like every day yeah. they're selling thousands and thousands of cat in the hat. And that's just like free money to them, you know? I mean, they pay Dr. Susan yeah. royalty, but then they keep the rest. And they use that money to buy up whatever they want. So if they see a new title that they want, they can pay, they can overpay for it. And they mm -hmm. do. And so it was very hard for us, this little imprint in Philadelphia to be competitive. So, um, so sometimes we would get proposals, but we usually couldn't afford them. And so we did spend a lot of time brainstorming ideas and coming up with our own ideas. And then I would go find writers to do them. Okay. Or as I said, you know, sometimes I'd do them myself. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Yeah. That's, I just don't know. Like, I'm like, do people just like drop random people just like drop off books in like the mailbox and be like, Hey, that would happen it? too. But believe okay. it or not. Yeah. I mean, you know, probably at least once a week, people would knock on the door, you know, okay. with, with a manuscript um, because they could. And, uh, and we would take it. I mean, you're not supposed to, you're actually, you know, the, the lawyers would advise us don't do it. Um, because you expose yourself to all kinds of legal liability. People think that you stole their idea because they wrote a novel about a witch and now you've published a novel about a witch. And they're like, well, you stole my idea about witches. And it's like, well, no, you know, like, yeah. it'd, be easy. it'd be so much like, easier to buy this book from you yeah. and to steal the idea, hire someone to copy what you did, you know. And so for your books, two of your um, more popular books are The Hidden Pictures mm -hmm. and The Impossible Fortress. Yep. Um, and they are very different from each other. So what made you decide to kind of go into different genres? Like, Oh, sure. You... Yeah. Well, so my first book is the impossible fortress and that is, uh, set in the 1980s semi autobiographical. Um, what happened was my father had gotten sick and I was going home a lot to central mm -hmm. Jersey where I grew up. Okay. And I was just feeling very nostalgic because like, you know, spending a lot of time sitting around waiting in like um, in hospitals and also just like going to like the house where I grew up, walking mm -hmm. around the town where I grew up. So I started like just to kill time. I started writing these little sketches in a, in a notebook. And um, and over time that evolved into this book, The Impossible Fortress, which is uh, kind of funny and kind of sweet. And um and then after it was done, you know, it's like, well, now, now what are you going to do? You're going to write another book, but you can't right. really, you can only really write like one semi-autobiographical <laughs> coming of age novel. Like you, you, you kind of like have one in you. Most people only have one. And so then it's like, well, if you want to have a career in publishing as an author, you kind of have to pick a lane. Um, so right. what, you know, what you do is like, you sort of look at what's out there. What do people do? Um, some people love romance. Some people love science fiction. 
Some people want to write very artistic, you know, so-called literary fiction. And I just realized, you know, what I like, I've always loved suspense novels. I love thrillers. Um, I like mystery. I like some mysteries. I like some horror. So I was like, well, I'm just going to write something in like that area, you know? And it, and yeah. so it's, it's tough because some people are like, is it a horror novel? And I'm like, well, not really. It's not scary, yeah. but. I mean, it kind of was. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people think it is. Some people don't. It was creepy. Um, so, um, but more than anything, I just think of it as like a suspense novel and, yeah. and I suppose a thriller. Um, so that's what my next book is going to be too. You know, I'm working on another one. Okay. And so I'm just going to stay in that, in that category as long as they'll have me. <laughs> yeah. And you, I, I'm just thinking about this now and I'm pretty sure I might be totally wrong, but, um, Jason Voorhees, I'm pretty sure it says Haddonfield is where that takes place or Michael Myers. Or one of them, I feel like they say is like Haddonfield. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, you're right. I think Michael Myers is from Haddonfield. Yeah, Haddonfield Michael Myers Lord. is from Haddonfield. That's so yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. I was I was just thinking about that. I'm like, oh, hard. <laughs> yeah, Haddonfield must be the uh, even though it's the least scary place, like probably right. in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> um. So besides just understanding like what people probably wanted, what was your specific inspiration behind Hidden Pictures? And what do you think readers can expect from it? What do you want readers to expect from it? Well, I mean, Hidden Pictures is, is an unusual book for people who haven't seen it. Um, there are illustrations in it. It's about this five-year-old mm -hmm. boy who's drawing all these weird pictures and his nanny is sort of puzzled by them. And, um, and I wanted to have those pictures in the book. So that was the whole impetus for it. I wanted to work with the illustrators uh, and collaborate with them on something and sort of really play around with like the form, like the physical form of the book. Um, I had not mm -hmm. seen, I'd not seen a novel, like the one that I wanted to do where these, I wanted the pictures to work as like clues to a mystery. Mm -hmm. So that was like the impetus for it. It was just to try to like experiment with the form. And then along the way, tell like a really fun and engaging story that was like, yeah. um, you, you know, exciting and suspenseful. Yeah. Um, and it's been great because I don't know that I fully anticipated this, but when you're selling a book nowadays, you're, you're doing so much of it online and having those images to help me sell the book, they're, they're, they're great. You know, on, on, yeah. on Instagram, people share them on TikTok. Um, right. So, and you mailed a bunch of, you would mail a bunch of them out to people too. That's uh, you know, what happened was somebody asked me if they could buy an autographed copy of the book from me. And I was like thinking about the line at my post office and how long that was <laughs> going to take me just to do it. And I said, you know, I'll tell you, what, I'll send you like a sticker with my autograph on. You can, you know, a book plate that you can just stick in your copy. And that will only cost me 60 cents. Uh, and I don't have to go to the post office to do it. And so I thought, great, I'm done. So I mailed it. And then, of course, he put it online and said, oh, gee. I wrote the author and he did this. And like the next time I look at my email, you know, there, there's like 50 requests. Oh, of people my who are gosh. Like, you know, can I get a sticker for my book? So so then it just became a thing, you know, like like my fortunately, my wife, she's really, really organized. She's like, you know what? You need to get these stickers printed. And so you're just signing them because I have like pictures on them, too, like of the of the characters mm -hmm. and um. And I would stick a postcard in there so the sticker didn't get bent. And she's like, just get a thousand postcards. You're going to use them. And she's right. Yeah. Like yeah. I probably sent out like 1,500 stickers wow. um, over the last year. Uh, it's cool. finally slowed down. But I have three downstairs that I got to mail out, like uh, three, three more requests. Wow. That's awesome. I might need a request one too. <laughs> it might be four. <laughs>
Um, so in the main character, so Mallory, she has like her own personal challenges being a recovering addict and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, then becoming a nanny to a family. Like, how did you go and develop Mallory's character? What challenge, uh, and what challenges she encountered, um, as she found herself like deeper into the situation? Yeah. Well, I mean, her character, I mean, she's from South Philly, so she's got this blue collar background and that's Mm -hmm. something that is just, you know, pretty like natural and intuitive to me like my dad's a construction worker mm-hmm. um I have like a bunch of nurses in my family yeah. uh and um so her voice was like really easy to do and you, you know i well i mean it's interesting i remember you know she has this whole sort of uh fish out of water feeling when she goes to haddonfield where she she's always feeling very insecure and like a little out of place because the family she's working for is very affluent and they're constantly underestimating her and second guessing her And that is, you know, back back when we first started talking, I mentioned to you that I had started working in New York in publishing. And that's kind of how I felt when I got there. Like, there's a lot of a lot of wealthy people going to publishing because it's like a prestigious job or, you know, Mm -hmm. some see it that way, you know, and um, there's nothing prestigious about it when you get there. But some people perceive of it as, uh, you know, thing is all like Nobel Prize winners sitting around um, sipping wine. (laughs) and um and i remember feeling you know a lot of insecurity and just and just realizing just how wealthy some people were Mm -hmm. you know like when i got to that job and like you'd be like oh my god i thought i knew what like a rich person was but i did not (laughs) (laughs) and um so i drew on a lot of that for mallory and like all of her insecurity when she's with this family um and I think in the book, she's probably about the same age that I was when I when I started working in New York City in Manhattan and, Mm -hmm. you know, making eighteen thousand dollars a year. So, you know, just being completely broke. But uh, so, yeah, I I pulled on a lot of that. It took me a while. I I, I don't think I kind of realized that until I answered your question. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. But I, I think that's where it came from. That's awesome. And so, you know, you did talk about the drawings. Um. And they're like such a big part of the story. And obviously, you know, you explain that that's kind of what you wanted them to have the clues for that. Um, but the drawings definitely got more and more intense as the story went on. And at the end, mm-hmm. uh, well, I guess I won't like give away too much. How did you decide to do that part of it or just kind of like flow through the story? In talking to the illustrators about it, you know, we realized like the illustrations, they sort of need to like evolve over the course of the book. Otherwise you're looking at the same thing mm-hmm. over and over. So they, they have to change. So right. one of the weird things that happens in the book is that the kid starts drawing the way a normal five-year-old would. They look like stick figures. But then through over the course of the book, uh, as the nanny keeps finding drawings, they start getting better. And mm-hmm. now she's like really freaking out because she knows that he's creating them, but they seem to be like, it seems to be things that he shouldn't understand that he's drawing and he's drawing at a level that like a five-year-old wouldn't draw at. Right. Uh, it's almost like he's channeling some kind of supernatural entity that's like guiding his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that was probably half oh, that sounds like a really interesting like plot development. But also the other half of it was, oh, and the pictures will start to evolve and that'll make it visually interesting for somebody reading the book. Mm-hmm. So that's all. Yeah. And then um, some of the other characters, like the gardener and the um, neighbor who has her psychic abilities, mm-hmm. like how did you decide to put those into it um, with their dynamics of the relationships that contribute to the unfolding of the story? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, with this kind of story, like your protagonist needs helpers. They need like Mm -hmm. allies. And so um, I knew, you know, so so in in the case of this book, there's there's sort of a kooky next door neighbor who knows some of the local local history. And, And, you know, one of the nanny's theories early on is that she thinks that she thinks there's a ghost haunting the house and it's the ghost of this woman who supposedly was murdered in the woods behind the house. And so the neighbor can fill her in on all this information. And then there's also a landscaper um, who also lives in the town. And, um, you know, I kind of just wanted it to feel like it's like a very summery book. Like I kind of mm-hmm. wanted it to feel like summer in the suburbs. And so I'm like, well, there should be some kind of like light romance in this book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just feels like appropriate that they should yeah. be able to like walk home at night holding hands and there's crickets chirping and like that, right. that kind of book. So. so my next question would be, um, do you think that this would be or could be or is it going to be made into a movie? Yes. Well, it may be. I know that, um, you know, Netflix has the rights to the movie and there was a script that everybody liked. And unfortunately, as soon as everybody agreed on it and it sounded, you know, it seemed like things were looking really, really good. Uh, the writers went on strike and now the actors are on strike too. Mm-hmm. So my fear is that, um, or my hope is that, you know, once the strike ends, which could be any week now, I mean, who knows, they will have preserved all of their original love for it that they had back in like, you know, May. Right. Um, my fear is that, you know, I think people in the studios, they, they lose interest very quickly. You know, they're always like attracted to like whatever the new shiny object is. And right. I've no doubt that there are a lot of writers right now, like working on spec scripts and things like that. And the moment the strike ends, everyone's going to be taking with. meetings, trying to sell what they're working on. Um, so I hope people will remember good old hidden pictures, uh, when the strike is over, but we'll I mean, see. It would- definitely make for a great um either series or movie and that's how i found out about the book i'm in a um, peloton mom book group on facebook and i mean like everybody was just raving about it and that's kind of how i choose what my books are um and this was one of them and i recommended it to so many of my friends and they have all loved it as well so i would love to see it on screen as well yeah Um, me too (laughs) yeah so before we wrap up, you said that you were going, you're in the process of creating a new um, book. Can you tell us like anything about that or what its timeline is? Or, Well, I mean, I'm hoping to finish it this year. Um, as to when it comes out, y- y- you know, publishing is moves really, really slow. So I'd be surprised if it came out next year. I mean, I guess there's a tiny chance that it might. Like if mm-hmm. they loved it, they could like crash it. But right. more realistically, it'll probably be like 2025. Okay. Um, so, and that'll be in, good too, because yeah. honestly, you know, the other thing you have to be careful of, this is crazy, but it's true. You know, in 2024, we're going to have an election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that election, like you just do not want to have your book coming out anytime around that thing, because if it's anything like the last one, people are not going to be able to focus on anything. You know, you kind of want to, it's just going to be like a, a storm of chaos. And so, you know, you either need your book to come out by September of 2024 or just, just wait, wait six months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see. Um, I hope, I hope it's, it's not the all consuming, you know, tempest that it was last time, but uh, I, it certainly seems like it's shaping up that way. Yeah. I think it will. <laughs> Unfortunately. 
Um, is this book have uh, ties to the Philadelphia area as well? Um, no, not really. Um, yeah, no, this one, this one's not set locally, uh, but it's another thriller. I mean, I don't want to say too much about it because I haven't really figured out how to pitch it yet, but it, it's, right. it's, um, and it's also about family. So I, I, to me, it feels like hidden pictures. Like I think it is written in the same kind of like tone and voice, mm-hmm. but there are no pictures in it. There are no oh, illustrations. <laughs> uh, there are no nannies. Um, not no five-year-old children. Um, <laughs> But uh, but still very much as another uh, suspense thriller about a family, two families, actually. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. Um, as I said, I've been looking forward to this and just hearing your perspective of everything about the book. I read it. I think I read it in like March or April. Um, OK, maybe. So it's been a while since I read it, but it's still like six with me. And I definitely recommend it, especially like being in this area, too. Um, I feel like I get so excited when there's something, uh, the book that I'm reading now is, um, don't forget to write. And that's actually set in Avalon in New Jersey, which is pretty cool in the sixties. And there's another one that's on my list, Bucks County. But anyway, I had no idea yours was set in the Philadelphia area. And I just find it even more cool just to have those connections to it, I guess. Um, yeah, get yeah, more sure. In it. And I finished that book in literally, I think like two days I finished it. <laughs> like I could not put it down. I had to know what was happening next. It just kept like every single part of me was like, wait, what? What? You know, so <laughs> that's, oh, that's when I know good. I really enjoy a book. Um, all right. So that's going to bring us to the end of another episode of the Running Wine Mom podcast. Thank you for joining us today to dive deep into the mysterious world of hidden pictures and the creative genius behind it, Jason. Um, I want to extend a huge thank you to Jason for sharing his insights into the book and his writing journey. If you are intrigued as I was by the story and the eerie drawings, be sure to grab a copy of Hidden Pictures and immerse yourself into the gripping ghost story. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a review and sharing it with fellow book lovers. You can also follow me on Instagram at the running wine mom underscore, or you can find Jason at Jason Rikulik. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for joining me today. I truly appreciate you taking some time out of your day. Yeah, of course. No, it was my pleasure, Sam. It was great to meet you. Good luck with those kids. I promise. Thank you. (laughs) One day I'll be on your side. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. You have a lot to report. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for joining um, us today. Remember, you are strong, you are capable, and you are all amazing. Until next time, keep running, keep sipping, and keep embracing the joy of motherhood. Cheers, and I will be back next Tuesday.